Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So, you know, we ordinarily begin this uh, show, or we sometimes begin this show, with a comic sketch. And, you know, in a good comic sketch for today's show, which is a conversation with Yasha Munk about the 21st century capacity uh, of democracies to revert away from being democracies uh, and become more ferocious things from their past, a good comic sketch would have been for me to may- maybe dream up uh, a, a crazy situation where in Serbia they'd be doing a musical about Slobodan Milosevic uh, that would be staged uh, as this kind of celebration of him as a person and and to the obviously to the horror of Kosovo's ethnic Albanian majority and anybody else who was killed or cleansed or uh, I mean the survivors of those people. Anyway, that would have been a sort of interesting but dark comic sketch. Except that's happening. You can't make this stuff up anymore. Yesterday, they actually did debut in Serbia a musical about Slobodan Milosevic. So I kind of give up trying to write comedy. Uh, I think maybe tragedy is what's called for here. Yasha Munk is joining us. Uh, he has been with us many times before. He's a lecturer at Harvard University and a senior fellow in the political reform program at New America. He writes a weekly column for Slate, where he also hosts the Good Fight podcast. He's also on Trumpcast uh, this week. And he's the author, most relevantly, of The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. Um, welcome back, Yasha, to our show. Uh, thank you so much for having me on, Colin, to promote Milosevic musical. No, I, it's just, a real I, honor. I just really <laughs> cannot wrap my mind around that idea. But I mean, that sounds terrifying, doesn't it? <laughs> I think when I was an undergrad in in England, somebody wrote Stalin the musical, but there was uh, not supposed to be celebratory of him, at least. So um, right. So, um, you know, one of the points that you make that I think uh, runs counter to our, our, our intuitive or kind of passive understanding of the world, and the, the, and, but was true for a long time, which was that once a nation got to be a democracy, you know, in recent decades anyway, barring real national poverty, as you point out, uh, it, as long as it doesn't drop below a certain threshold towards dire pro- poverty, democracy wasn't going to go away. But that seems to have changed. I mean, we've seen it in lots of places uh, where we're going to be talking about Poland today. We'll be talking about the Italian election. But I mean, is maybe you can flesh that idea out that the, there was, I think, a notion that democracy was a, a peak down from which you didn't climb once you got there. Yeah, the most famous expression of it was uh, a book and an article by the title The End of History by Francis Fukuyama. Mm-hmm. Um, which didn't argue that there wouldn't be any more wars, any more revolutions, but which did say liberal democracy has triumphed. It is the only truly legitimate political system in the world. There's no other political systems that most people would want to live in. And so over time, it's going to spread. Now, um, you know, even political scientists who didn't buy that ambitious thesis basically agreed on a smaller version of it, which is that in North America, in Western Europe, um, there was no longer any real ideological competition. Countries that had a deep democratic history but had changed governments for free and fair elections at least a couple of times. Countries that were relatively affluent but had, you know, at least $14,000 GDP per capita 
really were set in stone. You didn't have to worry about them. Um, and there's supposed to be a bunch of correlates to what the kind of system would look like. People were supposed to give great importance to living in a democracy. They weren't supposed to be open to authoritarian alternatives to democracy. There wasn't supposed to be any political parties and movements that actually violate the basic rules and norms of the system. Um, well, we've seen in the United States in the last years, um, but also in countries like Germany, where I grew up, countries like Italy in the election last week, countries like Sweden, that for a long time people thought was doing much better, and of course countries like Poland and Hungary that you mentioned, um, we've seen that that's no longer the case, that democracy is now actually under threat, that a set of very dangerous authoritarian populists are gaining more and more power. Um, so our certainties of yesteryear have gone out of a window. Right. And one of the things that I think that you that you outline, I mean, I think Poland is a really good uh, case to talk about, although not a happy case, which is that it can go very quickly, too. I mean, Poland had basically passed the physical that you have to go through to get into the European Union, which involves a validation of a lot of the kinds of norms that you just outlined. So they were there. They'd achieved those things. They had a functioning party, the leadership party that, that em embraced uh, all or most of those goals. And then almost overnight, things kind of went sideways and then backwards. What happened? Yeah, when you think of the countries that transitioned away from communism after the fall of the Soviet Union um, towards some form of liberal democracy, Poland really was one of the most promising examples. Its economy has done relatively well over the last 25 years. It has a really vibrant civil society, including excellent universities, newspapers, um, television statements from the once upon a time. Um, you have an active civil society. You have great universities. Um, and so if you had asked a political scientist who studies Central Europe three, five, ten years ago, is Poland a consolidated democracy, which is, you know, academic speak for can we just assume that democracy is going to be safe for, you know, the foreseeable future? They have said, yes, yes, at this point it is. We don't have to worry about the future of Polish democracy anymore. Well, a little over two years ago, a new government came in, which um, ran on quite similar rhetoric to other authoritarian populists around the world, including our own president, Donald Trump, claiming that they alone can fix the problems that they alone really stand for the interests and the will of ordinary Polish people, that the opposition isn't legitimate, that institutions that might try to stop them from turning the popular will to public policy once they take office are illegitimate, that the courts need to be sidelined, that the media is too critical. And, you know, about half of the time into their first term in office, they have managed to flood the Supreme Court with their own supporters to turn a lot of Polish media into a sheer propaganda outlet for the government. And it is now quite unclear whether the opposition will still remain retain a, a fair chance of ousting the government when, when they're up for re-election. Right. One thing that you point out in the book is Poland has both a state media and a private media. The state media was pretty easy to ideologically reconfigure uh, to serve the interests uh, of the new rulers. Uh, but then they started going after private media, too. And I think that's something you kind of want to watch. <laughs> if there's a democracy you're worried about, it's the equivalent of a hacking cough. Uh, you should watch it. Let, let's hear a little bit about uh, of how that rhetoric does sound, not the media rhetoric so much, but how that rhetoric does sound here in America. I wake up. 
determined to deliver a better life for the people all across this nation that have been ignored, neglected, and abandoned. I have visited the laid-off factory workers and the communities crushed by our horrible and unfair trade deals. These are the forgotten men and women of our country, and they are forgotten, but they're not going to be forgotten long. These are people who work hard, but no longer have a voice. I am your voice. Then, of course, is Donald Trump. Uh, that's his, his acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention uh, in Cleveland. But, uh, Yasha, this is a speech that really could have been delivered in different languages in Hungary, in Poland, uh, in Italy, uh, by some of the parties in France uh, or the Netherlands. This is a voice that we're hearing a lot, right? Yeah, you know, um, uh, I was entertained uh, because one of my colleagues studying populism, Kazmud, had published about a week before this speech an article claiming that Donald Trump is not a populist. Um, and the interesting thing about this speech is that it is almost the definition of populism, according to political scientists. So what does a, a populist really claim? A populist claims that the only reasons why there's problems in politics is that the elite doesn't really care about ordinary people, that they're uh, self-serving, that they're corrupt, that they care more about minorities, people who are not like, quote-unquote, you and me, than they do about the people who matter. And that what's needed in order to solve this problem is for somebody who really speaks the language, for somebody who really has the interest at heart to rise. And they have a preternatural ability, a special talent for actually channeling what people really want. What the populist claims is that he is the voice of the people. And so this claim, I'm your voice, that it's at the very core of what populists claim around the world. And whether it is um, Donald Trump talking about that in the ANC convention speech or in his inaugural address, or whether it is somebody like Marine Le Pen in France um, saying that she will wage her presidential campaign au nom du peuple, in the name of the people, that is precisely at the heart of the populist appeal. Um, one of the words that you've used, or a couple of the words that you've used a few times already are, are corrupt and, and illegitimate. Um, I do think that what we've seen, what we saw in Poland was that part of the problem was the civic platform, which was the more democratic um, party, the more identifiably democratic party started to have scandals. And, and I think in the 2016 campaign, you had Donald Trump plausibly or otherwise, uh, convincing the people that he would drain the swamp, to use his term. And, and I think 2016 had a lot to do with people believing that there was, in fact, a kind of almost different kind of deep state of entrenched interests in, in which public institutions could be manipulated to cough up money to those who knew the ATM pin code. And, and Trump and to a certain degree Sanders said that was true. Clinton didn't really step up the same way on that issue. And I think it deepened suspicions that she was a big part of that elite that was making out, uh, was, was profiting from a certain kind of uh, entrenched and corrupt privilege. And, and I, I wonder what you, I mean, it seems to me that in terms of rebuilding confidence, ethics is one of the places you really have to start. Absolutely. Um, so it's really important for political elites to get the act together. 
um, and 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 to do the right thing, uh, not have any corruption scandals, not to um, uh, sort of do special dealings, because this is a lot of what drives people's anger. People feel like their living standards haven't improved enough. Um, there is an incredible hold of money over politics. And so they need somebody who's their champion. Now, I think in general, by the way, uh, populists very rarely have the right answers, but they quite often um, do manage to channel frustrations over things that are very real problems. And when uh, they claim that the political elite has become a little bit too comfortable in its way of doing business, um, that there's obviously tremendous avenues by which uh, corporations, by which rich individuals can influence our politics in the United States, they are right about that. Um, so the way to compete with their false solutions, which end up aggravating the problem rather than fixing it, is to find imaginative and morally serious actual solutions that really will help to make our political system more responsive to people's interests and preferences um, and manage to expel money out of our politics to some extent. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously... Trump as a crusader uh, for uh, ethics in government and particularly monetary ethics in government is a joke. And I mean, the White House that he has now is like just this temple for money changers, this uncleansed uh, temple uh, of just insane amounts, and including the fact that, I mean, his business interests are, are intact and he's getting paid by, you know, business interests in the Philippines that are tied to Duterte. The whole thing is just insane. But it seemed to me that what he did during the campaign was to say, yep, you're right, you're suspicious. Suspicions are correct. This is a corrupt system. I can basically buy and sell politicians uh, with my donations. I've been doing it for most of my adult life. So if you were wondering, if you were wondering whether or not that funny smell was real, it absolutely is. And that somehow or other gave him more credibility than other people in the race. Yeah, and that's, I mean, there's a weird thing that, by the way, Silvio Berlusconi in Italy has done for a long time as well, which is to sort of have... Um, admit that perhaps <clears throat> you play the system as well and you do some things that are bad, but tell people, at least I'm honest about it. At least I'm not hypocritical. And there was an amazing moment of that in the campaign, which I think uh, w was a real turning point when um, both uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were asked on why she had attended his wedding. And uh, Hillary Clinton said, well, I thought it would be fun, which I don't think sounded like something people believed. Mm -hmm. um, going to Donald Trump's wedding doesn't seem like Hillary Clinton's idea of fun. Um, whereas Donald Trump said, well, look, it was in my interest, right? I was going to get something out of it. I, I, I paid her a bunch of money and donations, and so she had to turn up. And this was part of the way we do business in this kind of political system. And by the way, that's terrible. We need to change that. Um, so he sort of you know, showed that... Um, his opponent was hypocritical. He sort of admitted to doing something really quite shocking, which is to try and buy political favor through political donations. Um, but because he was upfront about it, people forgave him for it much more easily than somebody who, you know, seemed to pretend that the deep problems in the system don't exist. So, um, 
you know, to uh, as a helpful promotional uh, boost for your book, Yasha Monk, in his, the book, by the way, once again, The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. They staged some elections in Italy uh, just to give you something to talk about uh, as you did the press tour. <laughs> and Very so, kind of Italian people to to vote by, by two-thirds for the most extreme kinds of parties just to help my book. It's... Um, I've always had a special love of Italy, but that really was very kind of him. So you talked about Berlusconi before. You know, there are some interesting parallels here, uh, but he he can't run the country because of, of all things, a tax evasion conviction. Uh, but he's clearly trying to be a kingmaker and pulling together, uh, as you say, this coalition of rather odd and diverse parties that seem to share um, a sense of nationalism and, and maybe some other anti-democratic tendencies. I mean, what, you know, to your way of thinking, is what's going on in Italy? Italy right now. Well, I think the most striking thing about Italy is that, uh, you know, this guy Silvio Berlusconi, who, by the way, has a, a ton of striking similarities to Donald Trump. He um, is a real estate billionaire who um, was always a big figure in Italian media, um, had a whole bunch of complicated sex scandals, um, uh, kept getting into legal trouble. Entered politics in 1993, um, in his case, in part to keep out of jail, <laughs> in part because he needed the immunity that political office was going to give him so that he couldn't be prosecuted. He dominated the country's politics for the better part of two decades, um, winning and losing elections, but always being at the absolute forefront of a political system, and then was hounded out of office in ignominy in 2011. People really seemed to turn against them, uh, though people were fed up with Berlusconi. Uh, when his resignation was imminent, thousands of people came out into the streets of Rome to chant buffoon, buffoon at him. Um, a, an amateur orchestra and choir came out to to sing in a beautiful rendition, Hallelujah, uh, by, by Handel. Um, well, seven years later, he's back. <laughs> and not only is he back, but he's actually now one of the more moderate people in the system, not because he's mellowed that much, but because... Other parties and political movements have taken a page out of his playbook, have started to attack the political system, the media, independent judges, nearly as much or in some cases even more than he did. So you now have the far-right League Party, which is extremely xenophobic, and you have a very strange five-star movement which claims to be uh, practicing a form of direct democracy, but is actually run by a shadowy PR firm, and by the way, is led by people who um, claim that 9/11 was an inside job. Um, uh, all having even more of a share of the vote from Berlusconi. So between them, these three parties and movements now have 66% of the vote. And I think that's a really important lesson for us here in the United States, because when you are worried, as I personally am, by the ways in which Donald Trump is attacking. Uh, the separation of powers is is dangerous to our political system. It's easy to fixate on on the midterms and on 2020 and say, well, if only we win against him, everything is going to go back to normal. Well, examples like that of Italy suggest that populism stays in a system for a very long time, even when its first manifestation uh, goes away for a while. Well, yeah, and I think for that reason, 
I mean, there's somebody else who's back in Italy in a weird way. He hasn't been away uh, very long at all. And that's Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon is in Italy, or at least he was, um, getting all excited about the Five Star Movement and the League, calling that um, possible alliance, quote, the ultimate dream. Quote, the Italian people have gone further in a shorter period of time than the British did for Brexit or the Americans did for Trump. Uh, he said the election was crucial for the global populism movement. First of all, I don't know. I mean, should should we be, first of all be worried that Steve Bannon is studying studying Italy to see what he can bring back to the U.S. for whatever period does follow Trump after 2018, after 2020? Um, I mean, what is he doing in Italy anyway? Not that I expect you to read his mind, but what's he doing there? I mean, you know, I have to say it's the first time that I. Uh, sort of agree with Steve Bannon. I mean, Italy is a wonderful place to spend a couple of days. I wish I was in Rome right now rather mm-hmm. than in snowy New York City. Um, and no, I, 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 I can't answer you that question, but it is interesting that we still think of, in the United States, I think, we still think of Donald Trump as sui generis, as his own weird phenomenon that isn't really connected to what's going on in different parts of the world. And I think that's a real danger because we can only understand what's going on in our country and how we can fight against this phenomenon if we see it as part of a much wider movement. And and, and, and so there's two things that are important here. I mean, the first is the way in which, yes, there is a real similarity between Berlusconi and Trump. There's even some similarity between the Five Star Movement and Donald Trump. And Bannon is right about that. There is what I call an illiberal international that is on the, right, uh, on the rise. And, and they do have important things in common. And the second thing is, that you can only understand why this liberal international is successful in so many different countries in uh, the same time period, because there are these structural drivers of it that are at play not just here, but in other countries as well. And that includes the stagnation of living standards for ordinary people. That includes cultural factors like greater ethnic diversity, more immigration in different countries, and includes, of course, the rise of uh, social media and the internet, which makes it much easier for for extreme and hateful voices to play a role in our politics. I, I guess one question that I have, you know, I mean, Bannon talks about a global populist movement. I don't know if that's the right term for it, but I'm wondering that, to what degree you think all of these things reach out their tentacles and touch one another. I mean, you can see that Trump is enormously more fond uh, of Erdogan and Duterte and El Sisi uh, and Putin uh, than he is of many Democratic leaders. Uh, he's doubtless more comfortable with Le Pen than he is with Macron. Um, uh, I'm sure he has plenty to talk about if he gets together with Orban uh, in Hungary. So, I mean, is there some kind of global movement or do these things exist on their own in a very specific way uh, in any given nation? Well, I, I, a little bit of both, which is to say that I think each populist is an expression of things that are typical of the country. Um, so, you know, I think Donald Trump um has certain American characteristics that would make it very difficult for him or somebody who copied him in every respect to to run and 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 win office in a country like Italy or France. Um, but at the same time, I think he taps into a discontent and an energy, and he has some of the key rhetorical moves that other candidates do as well. Um, so what that means is that I think it was a mistake for a lot of European populists after 2016 to say, hey, we are like Trump, because even if you are the sort of person who would support somebody like Trump if they were American, 
But you're French. You might still hate America because you're a nationalist right-wing movement, right? Um, so, 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 yeah, there is an, an, an international movement. Um, I think the populists have to be careful not to make that too evident to their own voters. But they're clearly learning from each other. Um, and one of the striking things about Donald Trump, actually, is the ways in which uh, he uses similar rhetoric, similar imagery. He claims to represent the people, that he alone represents the people in a way that's also true of Marine Le Pen, that's also true of Silvio Berlusconi, that's also true of Recep Erdogan in Turkey. But at the same time, and, and, and I think we can count ourselves lucky about that, um, Trump has actually been a little less effective in copying that playbook than other people. So he hasn't been terribly strategic in taking over independent institutions in the United States. He's willing to do it, but he always does it in a responsive way because he needs, for example, to fire Robert Mueller eventually in order to stay out of legal trouble. And he tried to uh, stay out of legal trouble by firing James Comey. Um, he doesn't deliver for his base in the way that most other populists did. When you look at Turkey, at Poland, at Venezuela, authoritarian populists in those countries were very careful to actually give concrete material benefits to their core supporters. Again, Donald Trump, thankfully in certain ways, has not done that. And that's, that means that he's much less popular now than he might be otherwise. So my worry is actually what happens when this movement really comes home to roost in the United States? What happens when we, when either Donald Trump learns on a job, for he has, seems to have been stubbornly resistant to that uh, for one to a half years so far, or if somebody who's a, a smarter, more strategic incarnation of that international populist movement comes to hold real power in the United States. Right. One reason he may not be perfectly executing the playbook is he may not have read the playbook. That seems to be uh, <laughs> something of a, uh, of a condition he has. Uh, before we take a break, Yasha, we've got a call from Will in Norwich. I think you may have just addressed a lot of his question, but let's just hear his question anyway and see uh, if there's more that needs to be said. Hi, Will. You're on the air. Hi, how you doing, gentlemen? Fine. Um, you know, a uh, quick comment I wanted to make. You know, it, it's really hard to compare um, the Trump populist movement to the uh, European, let's say, uh, Poland movement. Um, I'm 100% Polish. I was born in Poland. Um, I live in the United States, but I follow the politics there very closely. Um, Poland's so much different because of what it is. Um, it's a mostly Catholic nation, white nation. Um, America's a melting pot. You have a million different ideas from a di million different parts of the world. You know what I mean? When it comes to Poland and the European Union came in, things were changing, things were being sold, the land's being sold, the companies are being sold. The Polish people didn't like that. Uh, they've been pushed around for thousands of years. So when they saw things, changes happen that they didn't like, this movement came back to to uh, fight back to their country. So it's totally, it's a different approach than how it's conducted in America. You know what I mean? Well, uh, let me let me go to Yasha on that. Uh, we've got to get to a break here. But d as you said before, different and the same. In some ways, Donald Trump was talking to a group of people who were mostly white, some considerably more homogenous than the nation at large, and who felt pushed around. Yeah, so, so there is an important difference between how European countries think of citizenship and membership and the United States. So one of the striking things we describe in my book is the extent to which democracy in Europe has always been premised on a mono-ethnic, mono-cultural self-conception that people said precisely, well, I know what it is to be a real Pole. It is to be descended from a particular ethnic group. It is to be Catholic. And anybody who who isn't those things can't really be 
a poll. Now, I think, especially in Western Europe, over the last 40 or 50 years, as we've had quite a lot of immigration to those countries, that has started to change. We've started to take on a more multi-ethnic notion of what it is to be a true German or Italian or Swede. Um, but some people obviously push against that and don't like that and say, no, no, we've had a long history as a mono-ethnic nation and I, I refuse to change that self-conception. Now, in the United States, you're right, but we've always been a multi-ethnic society, but we've always had people from different parts of the world uh, living here. Um, and that is obviously a country of immigration. But at the same time, uh, we've also had a very clear racial hierarchy in the past in which people of a certain ethnic group and a certain religion had huge advantages over others. Now, here too, that started to change over the last 20, 40, 60 years. The United States has become a much more, become a much more hospitable place, a much more just place uh, for minorities to live. But again, there is some deep resistance against that. Some people are very unhappy with the idea of giving up the kinds of privileges that they got from that racial hierarchy. So there is an important difference, but I think the, the underlying cultural backlash against an equal multi-ethnic society is actually surprisingly similar. All right, we're going to take a break. We are talking right now to Yasha Munk, author of The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. We'll be back. Kiss the ladies, shake hands with the fellows, and it's open for business like a cheap bordello, and they call it democracy. 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 We are all Britons, and I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we are an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship, a self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there get... you go, bringing class into it again. Well, that's what it's all about. If only people would... Please, realize... please, good people, I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? No one lives there. Then who is your lord? We don't have a lord. What? I told you, an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the... Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting... Yes, I see. ...by a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs... Be quiet. ...but by a two-thirds majority in the case be of... Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. All right, I can't listen to that without laughing, and I've heard it 80 million times. <laughs> um... We're talking to Yasha Mook right now, author of The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. Um, you know, we've, we just heard some Monty Python peasants discussing their various theories of government in the presence of, of King Arthur. But, you know, in some ways, Yasha, our notion, our fundamental American notion, you know, the, part of the reason that we're having a hit musical called Hamilton on Broadway, you know, kind of comes from this Lockean ideal that, that, that people are endowed with the ability to recognize natural laws, to apprehend the notions of fairness and justice and many of the things that undergird ideas of democracy that, that if you clear away all the garbage and rubbish and the impediments and the obstacles, people will want something that we could probably identify pretty closely as liberal democracy. Locke would have said we're kind of wired uh, to want it. it. It seems as though that's maybe not exactly the case. Yeah, no, I, 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 I don't think people are wired to like it. I mean, you know, one of the reasons why we fought that um, we have this deep ideological commitment to liberal democracy is that over the last 50 or 60 years, all of the good things went together. If you wanted to live in the most powerful country in the world, if you want to live in the most affluent country in the world, if you want to have the best standard of living, 
if you wanted to be free from government interference, if you wanted to have the ability to rule yourselves collectively, well, go live in a democracy, go live in the United States. Now we're starting to see the standard of living of uh, people in democracies uh, matched by some authoritarian regimes. We're starting to see much more competition for global military leadership and for leadership of, 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 of global influence. Um, we're starting to see real stagnation of living standards in the hearts of democracies. And so we seem to be realizing that actually some people might have cared more about those other things than about the democratic system. And if somebody tells them, hey, vote for me, and it might mean deviating a little bit from those political arrangements that you've been used to, it might mean breaking some of the basic rules of a political system that my predecessor stuck to, but I promise you, you're going to have a lot more money as a result when people are willing to give that a try. And the thing that I always go back to here is that I think we have this slightly cartoonish image of what it looks like when democracies perish. We picture hordes of people in, you know, big black boots, um, you know, doing the Hitler salute and, um, you know, walking through town with, uh, uh, with, 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 you know, fire torches in, in their hands. Um, that's not the way in which most democracies have historically gone away. What happens instead is that somebody... Uh, is elected who says, I, I'm going to make the system more democratic. I'm actually going to listen to you. I'm going to do away with all of these elites that have been holding you down. No more King Arthur. I'm one of the anarcho-syndicalists that stand for the peasants. Um, well, uh, once you allow um, one of these anarcho-syndicalist peasants to be first among equals, um, they might end up moving into that castle and telling you what to do after all. Um, you're probably familiar with the the Dutch uh, political theorist uh, Rob Ryman, uh, who one of the things he talks about in terms of the rise of fascism is that um, that fascism to him is basically rather than a particular particular political structure, it's people following their own worst instincts, people giving into their own worst instincts. Because in fact, our instincts aren't the best instincts; they're often the worst. And one of the things he blames is kind of the rise and exaltation of science and technology to the exclusion of the humanities. That ultimately, if you want people to believe in some of these things, you have to teach them why they're important, and you you can't value scientific progress and, and, and park our notions of, of the good citizen and of the civic good to the side and make it a kind of a second-class subject. I don't know. How do you react to that argument? So, so, so I know Rob Riemann and I, and I like him and I like his work. Um, I, I'm a little skeptical of parts of it. I mean, if fascism is giving in to your own worst instincts, um, then I was apparently being a fascist when I had my dessert yesterday. Um, so, so, you know, I'm not sure how helpful it is to think in those terms. And I'm not sure that it's helpful to uh, compare what is happening now to the rise of fascism, precisely because um, what sounds like an alarmist metaphor, right? My God, we're on the brink of fascism right now. Um, you know, it sounds like that's going to motivate people to go and stand up and do the right thing. Um, but actually, I think it, it it is so over the top that it deactivates people, that people are going to say, well, look, I mean, I have my own concerns about Donald Trump. I have my own concerns about what's going on. Uh, but you know what? I mean, he really, I mean, you know, he, he doesn't look much like a fascist. There isn't people marching through the streets with torches. You know, I don't see people doing the Hitler salute. So clearly everything is fine. Um, that's why I think it's important to emphasize that people like Viktor Orban in Hungary, people like 
Jarosław Kaczynski in, in Poland came to power in much more subtle ways um, and started to say, hey, you know what? The judiciary, the courts were really quite inefficient. Why don't we make them a little bit more efficient by giving me more control over them? You know, the media, you know, yeah. they like to complain a lot and have a lot of fake news. Why don't we regulate them a little bit more? <laughs> Those kinds of things, I think, are much bigger dangers than 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 sort of the idea that fascists march in the street and um, and 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 government falls that way. Well, Yasha, to that point. So I might might have already told you this uh, before, but I was at one Trump rally while the the full Republican primary field was still absolutely active, all sixteen of them, or however many there were, and, and uh, the, the the Democratic primaries were also going. I'm at a Trump rally and I'm talking to Trump supporters, and uh, you know, and they're they're sort of kind of who you think they are. And they're not horrible people. They're people who own machine shops and and auto body places and stuff like that, and we probably deal with them all the time. Uh, uh, you know, and and not really think about their political leanings at all. But they said a surprising thing to me that of all of the candidates available to them at the time, obviously Trump was their number one choice. That's why they were at his rally. Their second choice was Bernie Sanders, not some other Republican, not Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush or not anybody like that. Bernie Sanders was their uh, second choice. Let's let's hear Mara Liason talking to Mudcat Saunders, a Democratic political strategist and self-professed hillbilly who lives in southwestern Virginia. This is a conversation from. 2016. I started by calling Mudcat Saunders. He's a hillbilly and he's proud of it. He lives up a hollow in southwestern Virginia. And as you will hear soon, he had to drive up to the top of the hill near his house to get any cell reception. But Saunders is also a Democratic political strategist. And this year, he sees a lot of overlap between the populism of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. I call it the, the great new age of economic populism where I live. I don't think it's just a lot of Trump people, and they're obviously there, but at the same token, we've got tons of Bernie people here, and it's all the same thing. It's about populism. It's about economic fairness, and we feel like we've been left behind. So, Yasha, I'm guessing none of this surprises you, at least not at this point, uh, not very much, the notion that I would talk to Trump supporters whose second favorite candidate was Bernie Sanders. No, I mean, I think... um, what they share is a, a great ability to express disgust with the failings in our country and in our political system. Um, and I think that more moderate political candidates need to learn from that. That the starting point to, to have standing, to be taken seriously, is to actually be able to express some of the things that are going deeply wrong. Now, you know, when you have been in office for a long time, and when you've led a pretty good life, when you've gone to some of the best colleges in the country, uh, when you make a six-figure salary, that's difficult to do. And, you know, that's why I think, first of all, we need to make our politics a little bit more open uh, to people who have different life stories, um, who are younger than most of the candidates we're seeing, so that they're closer to, to their roots. Um, and it's why people need to spend more time with the voters and with the supporters and less time with, with lobbyists in, in Washington, D.C., less time making calls to, to their donors. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, it, it's important to, to realize the ways in which this populism can very easily turn into a betrayal of the interests of the people who vote for those candidates. We're seeing that very clearly with Donald Trump, who expressed quite well the feeling of people that, that, that the future is hopeless, that nobody's really helping them, that things can only get worse. 
And yet, once he came into office, he didn't do anything for them. He actually passed a tax reform that is full of considerations for special interests and big business groups that cuts taxes on businesses a lot, um, but doesn't cut them nearly as much for people who are really in need. Um, all right. Uh, actually, that kind of does fit in uh, with the call we're getting here uh, from Mary uh, in Hartford. We'll talk to her. We, then we're going to take a break. The show is flying by way too fast for my comfort. But Mary, uh, you're on the air. So where are people who are not socialized within the political, corporate, or institutional networks, which groups of people who some people call the elites because they know how to operate their systems? Where are we supposed to, the disenfranchised, the freelancers, supposed to have democratic conversations, uh, given that even the media, I mean, this is WNPR, but, you know, this program, which you host, is run twice a day, five days a week. Where, where are there conversations that are just more open to people who don't have power positions? Where do, where do we have voice to navigate new issues of value or old issues that we value openly? All right, let's, let's try that out on uh, Yasha. What's your reaction to that? Well, first of all, I, mean, I, I, I love shows that have a call-in element precisely because they are a way of getting people who, who aren't media professionals, who aren't you know, professional academics or writers as I am, um, into the conversation, and 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 that I think is a great public service, and and and, and it is a very important forum. The other thing I would say, though, is that um, social media has played this role. That 25 years ago, you know, people who ran NPR stations, people who owned big television networks or newspapers, really could decide which voices are heard in the public square, and which voices are not heard in the public square. Well, now, if they ignore a whole set of voices, those are going to build up a huge following on Facebook and Twitter very, very quickly. And then media outlets can either decide to ignore those voices, in which case they'll be irrelevant to the conversation of the day, or to actually amplify them and discuss them and thereby to push them. Now, that that has good element. It allows exactly those ignored outside voices to have a real role in our politics, and that's for the best. Sometimes it also allows hateful voices to spread. It also allows fake news to spread. And so it presents a challenge at the same time. We might talk a little bit more about that after the break. I mean, it's certainly the case that in places that had a state control, an utterly state controlled media, even takes a place like Singapore, um, where the the media was state controlled and the internet basically opened it up. It just, just there was too much contrary counter narrative information coming in there. They couldn't really main, maintain that kind of control, uh, at least not to the same degree. But it, it can have that dark effect too. Maybe we should talk a little bit about that on the other side of the break. Let's do that. What does this do to my plans to live out my days in a utopian hunter-gatherer commune on a sea platform? Come to think of it, what are we going to gather on a sea platform? I should ask one of the robot overlords. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish is a citizen of a geopolitical entity in which multiple overlapping states exist, but each state consists of citizens who have agreed to the laws of a single non-geographic state and... You know what? Never mind. The part of Bill Curry was played by King Ezekiel from The Walking Dead. 
And now, back to Colin. Yasha Munk, um, I, I think we need to talk a little bit about uh, constructive thinking, if there can be such a thing. Uh, the book we're talking about is The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. Maybe a place to start is, okay, so back to the 2016 campaign. When I would talk to Republicans, uh, well, actually, when I, let's start the other way. When I would talk to Democrats and they were watching the Republican process, they would say, wow, those guys, they have a lot of vitality, you know, and, and there's a lot of excitement going on there. And maybe we should be less hierarchical in the way that we do this stuff because, like, look, they're all just going crazy and having a, a lot of uh, excitement and getting a lot of people to show up at a lot of things. And when I would talk to Republicans, who were the ones who were very worried about Trump, they would say, you know, we should be more like the Democrats. We should be more hierarchical. We're way too open here. This process, like any lunatic can get in here, and that's what's happening now. I don't know. Is there a useful way to to, to split that? Uh, I don't want to say split the baby in half. That's too Solomonic. But you know what I'm asking. Well, you know, one of the interesting things actually in American politics is that people on both sides always um, live in fear of the the brilliance and the strategic acumen of people on the other political side. So, um, you know, <laughs> over the past year or two, I've been speaking to a lot of um, conservatives, uh, principled conservatives who are horrified by Donald Trump. And so it's led to some quite interesting exchanges. And one of them told me, you know, when I speak to you guys, when I speak to liberals, I, I realize, uh, you know, you will think that the Republicans have it all worked out and have these brilliant strategies, strategists, and they have incredible money on their side. And that's exactly what we on our side always used to talk about, say about Democrats and about liberals. So I think that's a sort of interesting background. But, but look, in the end, you know, the thing that actually draws energy and the thing that allows you to run a very effective campaign, even when there's clearly massive chaos, as there was in the Trump campaign, just as there is now in the Trump White House, is a very clear overarching message. For me, the 2016 election was a context, be contest between an extremist politics of change and a moderate politics of a status quo. Mm. Well, the extremist politics of change won, which doesn't mean that Americans are all extremists. It means that they really desperately want to change. And so if more moderate parties actually want to be able to compete with that energy, with that excitement, they need to promise a set of ideas about how the world might, might really be transformed, about how we can use the tools of a nation state in order to assure people that they have control of their own lives, so we don't have to fear the future, in order to show people that we can be in favor of globalization and free trade and automation and all of those things, but actually steer those phenomena in such a way that we become wealthier through it, we become more affluent through it, average people actually get something out of it, rich people have to pay taxes and can't hide the money in offshore havens so easily. Corporations have to pay taxes and can't say, hey, my headquarters is in Luxembourg or in the Bahamas, so um, you don't have anything on me. There are um, quite concrete things that politicians can do, but they need to speak a very clear moral language and they need to put forward some plans that are ambitious and that would change our country rather than saying everything's already great. One term that you use is inclusive patriotism or patriotic inclusion. I can't remember which one it is, but it's that notion anyway of a positive statement uh, about diversity. You talk about Macron uh, giving a speech where he's saying, I see France. And what do I see? I see Tunisians and Algerians and Albanians and Italians. And that's France. Uh, but in some ways, that's about sort of reclaiming some of the language of patriotism. Absolutely. So one of the huge... Uh Dangers we face now, and it goes back to, 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 to the excellent um, uh, question that the listener who was born in Poland asked, 
um, is that we have this very exclusionary concept of nationalism. And that takes one form in Poland. It takes another form that's quite strong in, in the United States and with the Trump administration. Now, one response to that is to say, let's abandon nationalism. If nationalism is so easily used by people to say, you're Muslim, you can't possibly be an American, then let's, let's abandon the whole thing. Or let's just celebrate sub-national identities, ethnic identities, religious identities, sexual identities, gender identities, um, to the exclusion of everything else. Well, I don't think that that, that is the, the right response. We obviously need to defend minorities against discrimination and attack, but I also think that we need to embrace our collective belonging to a nation and say, no, uh, we actually have more in common across ethnic and religious lines as Americans than people on either the, the right or parts of the left want to realize. And this is something we celebrate. What Macron said in the speech you reference is, look, I see people from all of these different parts of the world in this room, but what do I see? I see the people of Marseille. What do I see? I see the people of France. Look here, ladies and gentlemen of the Front National, this is what it means to be proud to be French. And that's a message that, by the way, people like Barack Obama pushed very effectively in the United States. And I think it's our best hope for um, spreading tolerance and building real solidarity within our country. Okay, I think I dare not ask another question. We're kind of out of time, but that's a tribute to how fascinating uh, Yasha Munk and his book and this conversation have been. Once again, the book is The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger uh, and How to Save It. Um, we have j really just scratched the surface uh, of dozens and dozens of really interesting ideas that are in this book. I really recommend that people read it. Uh, you will come away with your own uh, set of questions and answers. Um, thanks for doing this, sir. This was so much fun. Thank you. All right. Uh, we'll get you again as soon as possible. Uh, meanwhile, thanks to Betsy Kaplan, who uh, conceived this show and helped get me ready for it. Thanks for Kyle Wolf, uh, to Kyle Wolf for being on the board here. So uh, we'll be back tomorrow, though. Who knows how that might go? If you know what I mean, I love the country, but I can't stand the scene. And I'm neither left or right. I'm just staying home tonight, getting lost in that hopeless little screen. But I'm stubborn as those garbage bags of time cannot decay. I'm junk, but I'm still holding up this little wild bouquet. Democracy is coming, 